1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Can we pray uh, that reading that Paul wants us all to live in peace and harmony and our government to enable us to live in that peace and harmony so the word of God can be spread and the gospel be known in all our hearts. I urge then that first of all that requests, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Amen. This is not the first time I've had to fill in for someone who is absent, as I am tonight, um, some years ago, many years ago, when I was a new candidate, uh, I had to speak in Manchester at a meeting in the Conservative cause. And the chairman, who was a very fat and jolly man, started uh, the meeting by welcoming everybody and saying in a very loud voice, we asked the Prime Minister and he couldn't come. We asked the Shadow Secretary of State of Education, Margaret Thatcher, and she couldn't come. We asked Enoch Powell and he couldn't come. And so now we've got uh, 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 Henry, what's his name? Uh, Mr. Benyon. Oh yes, Mr. Benyon. Welcome to Mr. Benyon. So this is not the first time I've had such a a, a fill-in a fill role. I'm uh, looking around uh, the uh, election and delighted that whatever I say today will not make the slightest difference uh, to any polls. I can say exactly what I like. I think the age of deference is long since dead. Uh, gone are the days when the uh, Foreign Secretary would climb off an aeroplane, Mr. Selwyn Lloyd, to be met by a BBC reporter in a suit and tie to say, Foreign Secretary, how very nice to see you. Welcome back. Have you got anything you'd like to tell us from your trip abroad? No. Thank you very much indeed, Foreign Secretary. Very good of you to talk to us this afternoon. So the age of deference has gone and the deferential votes have gone. We can no longer presume that people will vote the way they did because their parents voted that way. Uh, and that, of course, is a very good thing. I think that the peak of a differential vote moment in my life was taking a, a group of constituents around the House of Commons. And any of you who have been there will realize what a daunting place it can be, those huge pillars, uh, the whole atmosphere, 
those, those statues of Palmerston and Disraeli all staring at you. Uh, and anyone going around had that feeling of um, being very daunted, very deferential. And I took a group of constituents through uh, Grand Central Lobby, and I was leading the way, and they were behind me. Uh, and um, unbeknownst to me, a very tall member of parliament, uh, the same size uh, as, as Andrew, uh, called Neil Martin, came into the lobby just behind my constituents. So there I was, constituents behind me, uh, and Neil Martin just emerged. And suddenly, the other side of the lobby, the door opened, and in walked the Chancellor of England, Quinton Hailsham. Now, Quinton Hailsham in an ordinary lounge suit was a terrifying sight, but in full Christmas tree order. On his left was black rod, on his right was silver stick in waiting, and he had a huge wig on, and he looked quite terrifying. And all he could see was me, my constituents, and his friend, Neil Martin, behind. And he said, Neil! And they all, my constituents, got down on their hands and knees. <laughs> So those days have long since gone. Why should Christians be involved? Is it that we are too holy? Uh, is it that we're so involved in encouraging our uh, friends uh, to come to Christ that we really feel we have no role to play uh, whatsoever in this election? Is it that we feel so whatever we do, whatever we say, will make not the slightest difference. Is it that we're so disgusted uh, at the expenses row? Is it that we feel that all our leaders, that we would like a box saying, none of the above? Uh, is it that we can see not the slightest point uh, to, uh, to our vote? Well, I feel, ladies and gentlemen, that we should see it in a very different way. I think that stout hearts and short swords, uh, that we can make a substantial difference. And we should look back at those people who fought so hard for our right to vote. I'm thinking of the country I know best, Zimbabwe, who would do anything, the people living in that country, to have a free and fair vote so they could actually get the government that they want. I've just come back from the Normandy landings and the First World War battlegrounds with my eldest grandson, uh, and what a daunting uh, and amazing scene that is. And I do recommend any of you who have not been uh, to take four days out and go there. Those people all died so democracy might live. The Civil War, the Civil War sites, all our freedoms, all our freedoms have been won in blood. They've all come at a cost of huge suffering and bravery. Even in the last century, the first part, the suffragettes, uh, winning, working so hard in the face of uh, blind prejudice to win the vote. So I wonder whether we fully understand just how hard it's been for us to find uh, the opportunity to cast a free and fair vote. Is it our reluctance to vote, this terrible 50% or is it more of people who are not going to vote, is it because they have illusions that politicians can do things that they really cannot do? I have to tell you, let's look at this and strip away the illusions. Whoever wins the election 
whether it be Conservative, whether it be Labour, whether it be a hung parliament or whatever happens, uh, within five years, the following will not have happened. I'm afraid politicians will not be able to do much about the incidence of the intake of drugs. They will not be able to do much uh, about the incidence of divorce, single-parent families. They'll not be able to do much about the intake of Valium, anxiety, mental illness. They'll not be able to do much about the rising crime rate. Now, we live in a blame culture. When things go wrong, we always like looking around the place for someone to blame, be it the judges, be it the police, be it the local authorities, or, or is it our national leaders? When actually, our frustrations are often a fact of looking at our own spotty faces in our mirror, the things that we, as a community, should be shouldering. Uh, and we have a spiritual void at the heart of our community that no political party, no political program can do anything uh, about. There are no such thing, I have to tell you, as Christian politics. It's just that some people make better decisions than others. We have, as I say, a spiritual void at the heart of our community. And uh, Anne Graham, the daughter of the US evangelist Billy Graham, was interviewed uh, a few years ago on the early show by Jane Clayson. And here is a brief abridged version of her interview. She was asked about the state of America, rising crime, intake of drugs, and all the things I've been listing. And she said, for years we've been telling God to get out of our schools, to get out of our government, to get out of our lives. Being the gentleman that he is, I believe he calmly backed out. How can we expect God to give his protection and blessing if we demand he leave us alone? It started when the inspector for schools in America, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, complained she didn't want any prayer in our schools, and we said okay. Mrs. O'Hare was murdered soon after that statement was made. Then someone suddenly said, you better not read the Bible in school. The Bible, it says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, love your neighbor as yourself. So we said, okay. Then someone said that we should let our daughters have abortions if they want. They won't have to tell their parents. And we said, okay. Then some wise school board member said that since boys will be boys and they're going to do it anyway, why not give them free condoms so they can have all the fun they desire and not have to tell their parents they got them at school. We said, okay. And some of our children said they just want to live with their boy and girlfriends and not get married just in case it doesn't work out. Even though it's proven that marriages are less likely to survive if the partners live together first, parents didn't know what to say other than okay. Then some of our top elected officials said it doesn't matter what we do in private as long as we do our jobs nor does it matter what the president does either, as long as the economy is good. We went along with that, too. And someone suddenly said, let's have magazines with nude women and call it wholesome, and down-to-earth appreciation of the beauty of the female body. We said, okay. And then someone went further and published pictures of nude children and went further again by putting them on the internet. We said, fine, as they're entitled to free speech. And then the entertainment industry said, Let's make TV shows and movies that promote profanity, violence, and illicit sex. And we will record music that encourages rape, drugs, murder, suicide, and satanic themes. And we said, it's just entertainment. 
and it is no adverse effect, and if one takes it seriously anyway, go right ahead, no one's going to care. Now we're asking, why is it that children have no conscience? Why they don't know right from wrong? Why it doesn't bother them to kill strangers, their classmates and themselves? Possibly it's something to do with, we reap what we sow. Funny how simple it is for people to trash God, then wonder why the world is going to hell. Funny how we believe what the newspapers say, but question, not, we, but, but question what the Bible says. Funny how we can say, I believe in God, but still follow Satan, who also believes in God. Funny how quick we are to judge and not to be judged. Funny how someone could be fired up for Christ on Sunday, but be an invisible Christian the rest of a week. Are we all laughing? Well, it is a troubled world. We have created this society uh, and what uh, can we do about it? I'm afraid no political party will be able to deliver the agenda which I think troubles the passions of the masses. I don't think that anyone can look for a great Christian leader uh, to command this country and get us back uh, into the path of righteousness. I think revival does not come from politics, does not come from a top down, it comes from a bottom up. It comes from us repenting of our sins. It comes from us uh, having a sense of disgust at the way that our society uh, is running. I don't think we can look to our political leaders for that. But the Bible says we are vice regents on earth. This is why we should vote. This is why we should take part in the political process. It's God's commission to rule, to subdue, and be fruitful. We are instructed to love one another, to use our talents and our gifts. Why do we need a steady government? As I uh, mentioned earlier in that prayer in Corinthians, uh, for kings and all those in the authorities, we lead peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness. It's because we are twisted in rebellion. And a firm government is absolutely essential to protect the weak. The worst position is not a dictatorship. It is that everybody does, as you read the last verse in the book of Judges, and everyone did as he saw fit. So we must have a firm government. We are, as I say, twisted in, rebel in rebellion. And our governments must do four vital things. The defense of the realm, the institution of the rule of law, look after the poor, and maintain the integrity of money. Everyone in the Bible verses that I have here, we should submit to authority. It is a God of order who protects all and the dignity of all human beings. There are, unfortunately, numbers of issues which are not debated in this election. Really vital issues, and we should ask ourselves why, and if we have half a chance to question our political leaders, why they're not talking about them. 
The issues, well, you have your own issues. I would choose the environment, the European Union, the degree in which our laws are being made by people who are not subject to the democratic process. Uh, the appalling indebtedness that we have as a country, I don't think this issue is being debated properly. Uh, and it seems that debate uh, that we're having on our screens is trivial. So what should we do about it? What can we do about it as people? First of all, I think we should um, try and get rid of our ignorance. I um, had a debate at Synod recently, and I asked uh, a, an excellent lady with uh, two first-class degrees, one at Oxford and one at Cambridge, quite a remarkable intellect, to prepare a brief uh, on the subject of video nasties. Uh, and she prepared an excellent brief for me. And then she questioned me carefully what I was going to ask for in my synod debate. And I was going to actually ask that the bishops and our youth leaders understood the problems in our society about the pernicious effect of video films, and they should be alerted to them. And she suddenly said to me, but what about censorship? And I said, well, we are a liberal democracy. You know, the horse, I'm afraid, is out of the stable, down the hill. And she said, but the Chinese do it. I suddenly realized that the poor lady was barking. Uh, it is rather like talking to someone who you think it entirely rational, and you suddenly see that he has got his hand in his front like this and his hat like that, and he thinks he's Napoleon. Uh, and we really have to, as a Christian community, understand the nature of the world we live in and understand what is possible. Uh, and uh, we really must... Uh, read newspapers with care and find out the truth of issues and not just the form. We must find out the substance. So that's the first thing we should do, it's to get ourselves better informed. Uh, the second thing we should do is please do stop thinking that our leaders are idiots. Uh, I get really angry when I hear political leaders of the past being bad-mouthed, I think is the word. Uh, I contested a uh, seat uh, held by Harold Wilson, who I got to know uh, a bit, got to know his wife a bit, and I think he's a great man. Did all sorts of things which are unheard of. And people say, of course, it's a complete waste of space, utterly useless, absolutely wrong, and shows the ignorance of the speaker. Without Harold Wilson, we'd have had no university, open universities for start off. Without Harold Wilson, for example, all of us of a certain age would have fought in Vietnam. He stopped all that. So possibly political leaders should be measured by what they stop as well as what they start. So when Kennedy, Jack Kennedy, was asked by a, a reporter uh, whether he thought that Hoover was a worse president than Calvin Coolidge or who was the worst president of the United States of America, Kennedy replied, until I see all the letters that passed their desk, understood in detail all the issues with which they grappled, and the advice they received, I would not want to judge. And so it should be. Any of us here who think that we could be Prime Minister of this country and do it better than the people who've struggled with it are deluding themselves. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Issues crowding in, and as McMillan said, issues, dear boy, issues come crowding in on you. The job is absolutely crippling. And all those people, I would submit to you, who choose to try and lead this country should be honored and prayed for and respected. 
that is liberal, democrat, conservative, or labor. So what we should be doing is to adopt a line by Blake. We should see with and not through the eye. How are we going to choose who we vote for? Will it be on national or local issues? And I submit this to you. I'm not going to advise you. I'm giving you the options that you should be grappling with. Should you be voting tactically? Should you be voting for candidates or for the party? Should you be measuring them by personalities or by the programs they are espousing? Should we be voting purely on grounds of self-interest? Those of you who are well-off may be attracted by the promises of the Conservatives uh, to limit capital transfer tax for sums over a million pounds. Is that right for you to vote for your own self-interest? Should you be voting for people who are embracing negative campaigns? For politicians who are putting forward programs based on greed, hatred, and fear? For politicians who are concentrating on the weaknesses of their opponents? May I commend that you try and see beyond stunts video clips, slogans, advertisements. Perhaps we should be commending those people who defied whips. I got to know Robin Cook quite well when I was a member of parliament and I disliked him acutely, but I was hugely impressed with his resignation over that war. What an extraordinary brave man he was when push turned to shove. And if I was in a seat with someone like Robin Cook with such a record, or indeed Frank Field, perhaps I would want to vote for him. Possibly we should look for politicians uh, who are constant, not those who just trim with the wind, who in a wonderful line of Sir Nicholas II, they said he was rather like a cushion bearing the imprints of a last bottom who sat on him. So possibly we should look for politicians who are constant. Possibly we should mark heavily against people who've gratuitously broken promises. Uh, we have a, an issue where we were promised a referendum on the European Union and it wasn't given to us. Uh, we were promised that taxes wouldn't rise and they did. To what degree was the political leader justified in breaking these manifesto pledges? Possibly we should be looking for those parties who are promising electoral change. Is it right uh, we have such an unrepresentative uh, government? Often having one of minority of votes, majority of seats, and in the last election, uh, Labour, former administration, having won 35% of the votes. Is that right? So possibly we should be seeking at this stage uh, those people who are promising electoral reform. Christianity, I would submit to you, has flourished under left, right, and central politics. So we cannot say that if you're a Christian, you should vote Labour, Conservative, or Liberal Democrat. That doesn't really uh, apply. We should participate. We, certainly we should vote. I'm sure all of you will wish to vote, cast a vote. I pray that you do. But I don't think that's enough. We are a 
participating, we should be a participating church. We're all too often voyeurs. Someone said watching television, watching a football match, you have 22 overworked people all needing a rest, being watched by 22 million people uh, all wanting exercise. We just watch, we criticize, we blame. How many people here have participated and tried to get on district councils, county councils, synod, or even the PCC? Why is it that when the PCC in this church there's a vacancy, it usually goes by default, that people say I'm really too busy? Why? Why aren't we more participatory? So, you may say, well, it doesn't really matter. It won't make any difference what I do. But I would submit to you this. When Mother Teresa was criticized that all she did was but a drop in an ocean, she said, but yes, but the ocean is made up of tiny drops. I would just end by saying this to you. As Christians, we are an Easter people living in a Good Friday world, and we can make a difference. And could I ask you to remember Jesus' words, I'm with you, even until the end of the age.